So we're going to be beginning our four-week series on the cross of Jesus. It's coming up to Easter, so it feels like an appropriate time. I am going to read from Matthew 27 now, and we'll begin at verse 27. So that's Matthew 27, verse 27. It says this, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted a, together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the writing charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by held insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You were going to destroy the temple and you build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. And if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers were crucified with him, also heaps and heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lamet Sabbatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. God, I pray that what you have revealed to me this week stands as truth and encouragement to all that hear it today. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So as I say, this is the beginning of our four-week series on the cross. Easter is coming up. Seems like a good time to do it. Uh, but one of the things that has been kind of fun for me this week is asking people what they think happened on the cross. And not just like an historical account, but like theologically, what is going on when Jesus is crucified? And uh, and one of the defaults, one of the things that people kind of came back to me with uh, was some of those Sunday school answers. Uh, some of us may have that image of the two cliffs 
in mind. So there's like two cliffs and there's a gap, and no one can cross the gap, but there's a cross and and people can cross across the cross to get from where we are to get to Jesus. Uh, but as uh, Daniel pointed out, this is kind of confusing because like the vertical top of the cross seems to be a barrier, so the image isn't great. Um, <laughs> and some of us may feel, okay, that's that's kind of nice and simple, and that worked when I was seven, but now it feels a little bit more reductive. Uh, my relationship has developed into something deeper and richer. And there were a lot of themes when I asked, uh, themes about being saved by the blood of Jesus, but we didn't quite know what that meant. Uh, the idea that we're separated from God, but we're not anymore. Uh, but we couldn't quite put that down to a specific point either. Uh, there's a debt, but now that debt's been paid, uh, but people couldn't quite work out who that debt was to. <laughs> Everyone agreed that the cross is of crucial significance, uh, but no one could quite convey how. I will say, actually, uh, Elena, who is now with us, gave me this like wonderful poetic answer, which I might actually just use as a meditation in a week or two. And uh, Elena is shaking her head at that. <laughs> The bottom line is uh, that people, uh, myself included, really seem to stumble over what is happening on the cross. So I thought, well, let's spend a few weeks on it, thinking about it. I want to talk about how God's love is revealed, and that's all I really want to talk about ever, actually. Uh, but I want to talk about how God's love is revealed to us on the cross. Um, so we're going to talk about what happened cross. But today, actually, we're going to talk about one of the things that I think didn't happen on the cross. Because one of the things I think didn't happen on the cross is abandonment. I don't think that there is ever a point when God abandoned Jesus. Now, some of you may be having some different reactions to that. Some of you may be thinking, well, James, you literally just read scripture where Jesus cries out, <laughs> asking why God has forsaken him. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And, and now James is jumping in and saying, well, God, Jesus said that, but he didn't really mean it. And you should be very wary of preachers who tell you that kind of thing. Uh, so just bear with me throughout this whole thing, okay? And some of you may be thinking, well, well, that's a crazy thing to think. Of course God wouldn't abandon Jesus. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of that. Uh, but if that's your kind of default response, I encourage you to think a little bit deeper. Uh, because whether we realize it or not, this idea of abandonment uh, has really infiltrated Christian culture more than we might like to admit. There's, there's this song, and, and, and the title of the song is wonderful and beautiful. The name of the song is called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And, and if you know anything about me, you'll know I want to spend most of my time talking about how deep God's love is for God's children, every single human being throughout history, not one excluded ever. That's all I really want to talk about. But this song that is about the depths of father's love, and if they, you really like this song and this ruins it for you, I'm, I'm really sorry. It's kind of like, so my mom's a doctor, but whenever I watch like a medical show with her, she's like, well, that's not how that works. I'm like, mom, just let me enjoy this. <laughs> I'm worried I do that with worship songs. It's not my intention. But this song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, uh, is talking about the cross for, for quite a chunk of it. And it has this line. 
has this line. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. The father turns his face away. The father can, can no longer look at his suffering son. And he looks the other way. He abandons him. And the reason I want to talk about, the reason I want to start here, is that I worry that these thoughts consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously paint an untrue and ultimately an unloving or certainly less loving picture of who God is. And if our God is a God who abandons, then that can make it harder for us to trust God. I want us to trust God. I want us to seek refuge in God's arms. I want you to believe the truth that there is nowhere better to be. But but if the fear is that God might be a God who abandons you, uh, if that sin is too great, then you run from God instead of running to God, and that's not something I want. I don't think it's something God wants either. But what do we do with this? Uh, the idea that God would turn God's face away, because I find this really chilling. I find this really hard. Um, I, I've done a whole bunch of things in my life I'm really not proud of, and I've hurt people uh, quite badly, and 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 that's really hard for me to to, to deal with. Um, but the idea that, as a result of that, that God would turn his face away from me, uh, that, that is unbearable. That's too much. It's too hard. And, and maybe there's something that you've done or, or someone that you've hurt. And if your instinct isn't that you'll be safe running into the arms of God, then, then I dare say that this uh, abandonment mentality has kind of got hold of you too. If you think God is going to push you further away instead of drawing you closer, I don't think you've understand God's story as radically as as we need to. Because the idea again that, that God would turn God's face away from the Son that God has known and loved and been in relationship with from the foundations of the earth well, doesn't really bode well for me, does it? <laughs> But, but here's some good news. So that was bad news. Here's some good news. And actually, from here on out today, it's all good news. It's all good news. Um, the good news is that God abandoning Jesus on the cross isn't true. <laughs> uh, not only is it not true, uh, it's actually a heresy. Uh, Christians decided 1,500 years ago, about 570 AD, uh, that there was absolutely nothing, nothing ever, at no point, could the Trinity be separated? They call the heresy tritheism for people that are interested in that kind of thing. Um, so these words that the Father turns his face away, uh, I, not, not only he doesn't turn his face away, but actually God can't turn his face away. God cannot abandon Jesus because a God that abandons isn't God at all. The God who turns his face away from the son who suffers on the cross is not God. 
So there you go. Everyone, everyone feeling better now? <laughs> so that song was pretty compelling, James, but I'm sure this council in 570, uh, you know, is, maybe you need a little bit more. That's okay. Because I did start with Jesus cry on the cross. And, and I've been fascinated with this for as, for as long as I can remember. I, I swear when I actually started reading the Bible, which is you know, a little bit more recently than you might think, I've just been fascinated by it. Uh, it gets called the cry of dereliction. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Because this is a really painful line. And, and there may be some of us that have, have felt that especially in the last year, I suppose, when things have been harder, uh, when it's been more difficult to connect with other people. It's, it's possible that some of us do feel more abandoned. So Jesus cries out, why have you abandoned me? And so then we're kind of stuck saying, well, is Jesus wrong? Because Jesus can't be wrong. <laughs> All right, well, is Jesus lying? Well, no, Jesus can't lie. Well, James, what's it going to be? And I think what's important is to remember one of the ways that people taught 2,000 years ago. And how people teach today. One of the big pieces back then, and, and now as well, but especially back then, is that you could say a lot with just a few words. But within Hebrew culture, when teaching, you could use a line of scripture as a kind of shorthand for the whole passage. Remember, a whole bunch of people knew their scriptures back then. And so with just one line, you're essentially pointing to the rest of the verse, the rest of the passage, the rest of the chapter uh, that those people would know of. And you'll kind of see me do this from time to time. Like when I'm with uh, Christians that kind of agree with me on everything, uh, I can just quickly say like, whatever you do to the least of these. And the people that know their Bible, or at least you know, focus on the bits that I do, will know that I'm quoting from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, whatever we do for the least, we also do for him. When we feed the hungry, we feed him. Uh, it's kind of a verbal shorthand. And Jesus does this too. Uh, he does it really like explicitly in Luke 4, but elsewhere too. But saying a line from the Old Testament is, is really alluding to the whole chapter, the whole passage. And Jesus is doing something similar here. Saying a lot with just a few words, pointing to a whole body of scripture with just one line. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And remember, these are words like uttered from a, a body that is, is slowly dying. It's, it's been starved of oxygen. But Jesus is quoting, and I believe ultimately pointing to Psalm 22, and it's not a surprise that a body that can barely breathe is not going to say the whole of Psalm 22, but it may well point us there. He's dying of asphyxiation, so we should probably forgive him for not quoting the whole thing. But but let's look at Psalm 22. You, know, you can jump to it if you want. Um if we look at Psalm 22, let's look at all these echoes of what else is happening on the cross. Um, in Psalm 22, verse 6, he said, uh, the psalmist writes, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. 
In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on, on him. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. I, th- does this sound similar to what I've just read out? Like Matthew 27, 43 literally says, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants to. So Matthew 27 and Psalm 22 are like saying the same thing. The psalm goes on, I'm poured out like water or my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned like wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like pottery and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. John 19, 28, literally Jesus says, I am thirsty. His mouth is so dry. Psalm 22 continues, God's dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. Jesus has been crucified. But that's how they nail you there. <laughs> Psalm 22 continues, them all my bones are on display. People stare and they glow over me. Matthew 27, 39 and 40 says, those who pass by hold insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my clothes among them. They cast lots of my garments. <laughs> Matthew 27, 35 says, when they crucified him, they divided his clothes up by casting lots. You see all these parallels all the way through, all the way through, all the way through. And then Psalm 22 says this, this psalm that begins by saying, why have you abandoned me? This is how it ends. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. God has not hidden his face from him. But God has listened to his cry for help. God has listened. God has not turned his face. That's what's going on here all the way through. God sees and hears everything that Jesus is going through. And even though it breaks his heart, much like it should break our own, whenever cruelty is visited upon the ones we love, God doesn't go anywhere. We have such a huge view of sin and such a tiny view of God. And when we sing or we say that the Father turns his face away, we dare to imply that Jesus and God could ever be separated then we dare to say that somehow sin is stronger than the Trinitarian bond of love between the Trinity. (laughs) I'm getting angry. (laughs) There is, let me be clear, there is nothing stronger in the entire universe than the love that unifies the Trinity and unifies God with us. There is nothing stronger than that. You can run where you want, and that love will follow you. And you can hide where you want, and that love will find you. A mentor once said, James, just so you know, when you get enthusiastic, it just sounds like you're getting very angry. And (laughs) I'm just excited, I promise. But, But the idea that God wouldn't be separated from Jesus and wouldn't be separated from us, that God doesn't abandon. This shouldn't be news to us. This shouldn't be a surprise, not if we've been paying attention. 
Like, do you know how often that promise that God will never abandon or forsaken comes up in Scripture? Like over and over again, the books of the law and the prophets and the history books and the Pauline epistles and Hebrews as well. And, and if you don't know what those books are, just trust me, it's in the Bible a bunch. That's fine too. These promises that were made to different people at different times in different situations, but the promise remains the same. Never will I abandon you. Never will I forsake you. And and just in case promise after promise and story after story of God's faithfulness isn't enough, let's just look to Jesus. Let's just look to Jesus. There is nothing in Jesus that does not reveal who God is. There's never a point when Jesus acts in a way that God wouldn't. Think of all the opportunities that Jesus has to abandon people because they let him down. And what does he do? Like, What's the, what's the thing that Peter is most famous for? I and mean, it's kind of rough and sad, but I feel the thing that Peter is most famous for is denying Jesus three times. Like, Peter abandons Jesus. <laughs> he denies ever knowing him. And what's the first thing that Jesus does when they meet? He cooks him breakfast. <laughs> He shares a meal. He reassures Peter he knows that he loves him. Never will I abandon you, Peter. <laughs> like, even midway through his own crucifixion, Jesus doesn't abandon the people crucifying him. The people said, listen, the people stood watching the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself for if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up to him and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And one of the criminals hung, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. What does Jesus say? You know what Jesus' words are to these people? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is faithful to his torturers mid-torture. <laughs> Despite the crucifixion being this miserable, awful, awful way to die. Despite every breath being agony. With what few words Jesus is able to muster, it's a plea for forgiveness for others. Jesus forgives his torturers mid-torture. He forgives his executioners mid-execution. And we think that he might turn his face from us? Like, What more could Jesus do to show that's not who he is? That's not something he's ever going to do. Like on the cross, he's, he's basically saying, never will I abandon you, torturers. Never will I forsake you, executioners. To the torturers and executioners, doing it to him right there. Like if ever there was a time to call down those legions of angels and get his smite on, if ever there was a time to come down from the cross like they dare him to do, 
And yet Jesus chooses life and love and relationship over and over and over and over. So, so I don't know uh, what it means for you. I don't know what it means to embrace that truth that, that you are not abandoned, will not be abandoned, will never be abandoned by God, no matter how how awful you might think you are, <laughs> or how much you don't need it at all. It doesn't change the truth that we have a God who has revealed over and over again that he will never abandon, he will never forsake. So I just, I really encourage and I implore you to to spend time listening to that voice of the one who will not abandon and will not forsake. That one who chooses forgiveness regardless of how awful we can be to one another and to him. And, and when, those, when those voices creep in, saying that it's too much, remember that it's never too much. That, that plea of Father, forgive them, it, it just stretches forever. So, uh, let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are a God who is faithful, regardless of how faithful we may or may not be. We pray that we can follow your example of faithfulness, that we can point to you in our steadfast love. That people know that we are yours because of the way that we love, because of our faithfulness, because that we do not abandon. We pray that we can be more and more and more like you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.